This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Walking by Henry David Thoreau LibriVox Part 1 of 2 Walking I wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness, as contrasted with a freedom and culture merely civil, to regard man as an inhabitant, or a part and parcel of nature, rather than a member of society. I wish to make an extreme statement, if so I may make an emphatic one, for there are enough champions of civilization. The minister and the school committee, and every one of you, will take care of that. I have met with but one or two persons in the course of my life who understood the art of walking, that is, taking walks, who had a genius, so to speak, for sauntering, which word is beautifully derived from idle people who roved about the country in the Middle Ages and asked charity under the pretense of going a la Saint Terre to the Holy Land, till the children exclaimed, There goes a Saint Terre a saunterer, a holy lander. They who never go to the holy land in their walks, as they pretend, are indeed mere idlers and vagabonds, but they who do go there are saunterers in the good sense, such as I mean. Some, however, would derive the word from sans terre, without land or a home, which, therefore, in the good sense will mean having no particular home, but equally at home everywhere. For this is the secret of successful sauntering. He who sits still in a house all the time may be the greatest vagrant of all. But the saunterer, in the good sense, is no more vagrant than the meandering river, which is all the while sedulously seeking the shortest course to the sea. But I prefer the first, which, indeed, is the most probable derivation. For every walk is a sort of crusade, preached by some Peter the Hermit in us, to go forth and reconquer this holy land from the hands of the infidels. It is true, we are but faint-hearted crusaders, even the walkers nowadays, who undertake no persevering, never-ending enterprises. Our expeditions are but tours, and come round again at evening to the old hearthside from which we set out, Half the walk is but retracing our steps. We should go forth on the shortest walk, perchance, in the spirit of undying adventure, never to return, prepared to send back our embalmed hearts only as relics to our desolate kingdoms. If you were ready to leave father and mother, and brother and sister, and wife and child and friends, and never see them again, if you have paid your debts, and made your will, and settled all your affairs, and you are a free man, then you are ready for a walk. To come down to my own experience, my companion and I, for I sometimes have a companion, take pleasure in fancying ourselves knights of a new, or rather an old, order, not equestrians or chevaliers, not ridders or riders, but walkers, a still more ancient and honorable class, I trust, the chivalric and heroic spirit which once belonged to the writer now seems to reside in 
or perchance to have subsided into, the walker. Not the knight, but the walker errant. He is a sort of fourth estate, outside of church and state and people. We have felt that we almost alone hereabouts practiced this noble art, though, to tell the truth, at least if their own assertions are to be received, most of my townsmen would fain walk sometimes, as I do, but they cannot. No wealth can buy the requisite leisure, freedom, and independence which are the capital in this profession. It comes only by the grace of God. It requires a direct dispensation from heaven to become a walker. You must be born into the family of the walkers. Ambulator, nasiter, non fit. Some of my townsmen, it is true, can remember and have described to me some walks which they took ten years ago, in which they were so blessed as to lose themselves for half an hour in the woods. But I know very well that they have confined themselves to the highway ever since. Whatever pretensions they may make to belong to, this select class. No doubt they were elevated for a moment, as by the reminiscence of a previous state of existence, when even they were foresters and outlaws. When he came to Greenwood, in a merry morning, there he heard the notes small, of birds merry singing. It is fair gone, said Robin, that I was last here. Me list a little, for to shoot at the dawny deer. I think that I cannot preserve my health and spirits, unless I spend four hours a day at least, and it is commonly more than that, sauntering through the woods and over the hills and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagements. You may safely say, a penny for your thoughts, or a thousand pounds, when sometimes I am reminded that the mechanics and shopkeepers stay in their shops not only all the forenoon, but all the afternoon too, sitting with crossed legs, so many of them, as if the legs were made to sit upon, and not to stand or walk upon. I think that they deserve some credit for not having all committed suicide long ago. I, who cannot stay in my chamber for a single day without acquiring some rust, and when sometimes I have stolen forth for a walk at the eleventh hour, or four o'clock in the afternoon, too late to redeem the day, when the shades of night were already beginning to be mingled with the daylight, have felt as if I had committed some sin to be atoned for. I confess that I am astonished at the power of endurance, to say nothing of the moral insensibility of my neighbors who confine themselves to shops and offices the whole day, for weeks and months, ay, and years, almost together. I know not what manner of stuff they are of, sitting there now at three o'clock in the afternoon, as if it were three o'clock in the morning. Bonaparte may talk of the three o'clock in the morning courage, but it is nothing to the courage which can sit down cheerfully at this hour in the afternoon over against oneself whom you have known all the morning, to starve out a garrison to whom you are bound by such strong ties of sympathy. I wonder that about this time, or say between four and five o'clock in the afternoon, too late for the morning papers, and too early for the evening ones, there is not a general explosion heard up and down the street, 
scattering a legion of antiquated and house-bred notions, and whims to the four winds, for an airing. And so, the evil cure itself. How womankind, who are confined to the house still more than men, stand it I do not know. But I have ground to suspect that most of them do not stand it at all. When, early in a summer afternoon, we have been shaking the dust of the village from the skirts of our garments, making haste past those houses with purely Doric or Gothic fronts, which have such an air of repose about them, my companion whispers that probably about these times their occupants are all gone to bed. Then it is that I appreciate the beauty and the glory of architecture, which itself never turns in, but forever stands out and erect, keeping watch over the slumberers. No doubt temperament, and above all, age, have a good deal to do with it. As a man grows older, his ability to sit still and follow indoor occupations increases. He grows vespertinal in his habits as the evening of life approaches, till, at last he comes forth only just before sundown and gets all the walk that he requires in half an hour. But the walking of which I speak has nothing in it akin to taking exercise, as it is called, as the sick take medicine at stated hours, as the swinging of dumbbells or chairs, but is itself the enterprise and adventure of the day. If you would get exercise, go in search of the springs of life. Think of a man swinging dumbbells for his health when those springs are bubbling up in far-off pastures unsought by him. Moreover, you must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates when walking. When a traveler asked Wordsworth's servant to show him her master's study, she answered, Here is his library, but his study is out of doors. Living much out of doors, in the sun and wind, will no doubt produce a certain roughness of character, will cause a thicker cuticle to grow over some of the finer qualities of our nature, as on the face and hands, or as severe manual labor robs the hands of some of their delicacy of touch. So staying in the house, on the other hand, may produce a softness and smoothness, not to say thinness of skin, accompanied by an increased sensibility to certain impressions. Perhaps we should be more susceptible to some influences important to our intellectual and moral growth. If the sun had shone, and the wind blown on us a little less. And no doubt, it is a nice matter to proportion rightly the thick and thin skin. But methinks that is a scurf that will fall off fast enough. That the natural remedy is to be found in the proportion which night bears to the day, the winter to the summer, thought to experience. There will be so much more the air and sunshine in our thoughts. The callous palms of the laborer are conversant with the finer tissues of self-respect and heroism, whose touch thrills the heart than the languid fingers of idleness. That is mere sentimentality, that lies abed by day and thinks itself white, 
far from the tan and callous of experience. When we walk, we naturally go to the fields and woods. But what would become of us if we walked only in a garden or a mall? Even some sects of philosophers have felt the necessity of importing the woods to themselves, since they did not go to the woods. They planted groves and walks of platanes, where they took subdiles, ambulationes, and porticos open to the air. Of course, it is of no use to direct our steps to the woods if they do not carry us thither. I am alarmed when it happens that I have walked a mile into the woods bodily without getting there in spirit. In my afternoon walk, I would fain forget all my morning occupations and my obligations to society. But it sometimes happens that I cannot easily shake off the village. The thought of some work will run in my head and I am not where my body is. I am out of my senses. In my walks, I would fain return to my senses. What business have I in the woods, if I am thinking of something out of the woods? I suspect myself, and cannot help a shudder, when I find myself so implicated, even in what are called good works, for this may sometimes happen. My vicinity affords many good walks, and though for so many years I have walked almost every day, and sometimes for several days together, I have not yet exhausted them. An absolutely new prospect is a great happiness, and I can still get this any afternoon. Two or three hours walking will carry me to as strange a country as I expect ever to see. A single farmhouse, which I had not seen before, is sometimes as good as the dominions of the King Dahomey. There is in fact a sort of harmony discoverable between the capabilities of the landscape within a circle of ten miles radius, or the limits of an afternoon walk, and the threescore years and ten of human life. It will never become quite familiar to you. Nowadays, almost all man's improvements so-called, as the building of houses, and the cutting down of the forest, and of all large trees, simply to form the landscape, and make it more and more tame and cheap. A people who would begin by burning the fences, and let the forest stand. I saw the fences half consumed, their ends lost in the middle of the prairie, and some worldly miser, with a surveyor, looking after his bounds, while heaven had taken place around him, and he did not see the angels going to and fro, but was looking for an old post-hole in the midst of paradise. I looked again, and saw him standing in the middle of a boggy Stygian fen, surrounded by devils, and he had found his bounds without a doubt, three little stones where a stake had been driven, and looking nearer, I saw that the Prince of Darkness was his surveyor. I can easily walk ten, fifteen, twenty, any number of miles, commencing at my own door, without going by any house, without crossing a road except where the fox and the mink do, first along by the river, and then the brook, and then the meadow and the woodside.
There are square miles in my vicinity which have no inhabitant. From many a hill I can see civilization, and the abodes of man afar. The farmers in their works are scarcely more obvious than woodchucks in their burrows. Man and his affairs, church and state and school, trade and commerce, and manufacturers and agriculture, even politics, the most alarming of them all, I am pleased to see how little space they occupy in the landscape. Politics is but a narrow field, and that still narrower highway yonder leads to it. I sometimes direct the traveler thither. If you would go to the political world, follow the great road, follow that market man, keep his dust in your eyes, and it will lead you straight to it. For it, too, has its place merely, and does not occupy all space. I pass from it as from a bean field into the forest, and it is forgotten. In one half hour I can walk off to some portion of the earth's surface, where a man does not stand from one year's end to another, and there, consequently, politics are not, for they are but as the cigar smoke of a man. The village is the place to which the roads tend, a sort of expansion of the highway, as a lake of a river. It is the body of which roads are the arms and legs, a trivial or quadrivial place, the thoroughfare and ordinary of travelers. The word is from the Latin villa, which together with via, away, or more anciently ved and vela, Varro derives from vejo, to carry, because the villa is the place to and from which things are carried. They who got their living by teeming were said, Velaturum fesser. Hence, too, the Latin word vils and our vile, also villain. This suggests what kind of degeneracy villagers are liable to. They are wayworn by the travel that goes by and over them, without traveling themselves. Some do not walk at all. Others walk in the highways. A few walk across lots. Roads are made for horses and men of business. I do not travel in them much, comparatively, because I am not in a hurry to get to any tavern or grocery or livery stable or depot to which they may lead. I am a good horse to travel, but not from choice a roadster. The landscape painter uses the figures of men to mark a road. He would not make that use of my figure. I walk out into a nature such as the old prophets and poets, Manu, Moses, Homer, Chaucer, walked in. You may name it America, but it is not America, neither Americus Vespucius, nor Columbus, nor the rest were the discoverers of it. There is a truer account of it in mythology than in any history of America, so-called, that I have seen. However, there are a few old roads that may be trodden with profit, as if they led somewhere now that they are nearly discontinued. There is the old Marlborough Road, which does not go to Marlborough now, methinks, unless that is Marlborough where it carries me.
I am the bolder to speak of it here, because I presume that there are one or two such roads in every town. The Old Marlborough Road Where they once dug for money, but never found any, where sometimes Marshall Miles, Singly Files, and Elijah Wood, I fear for no good, no other man, save Alicia Dugan, O man of wild habits, partridges and rabbits, who hast no cares, only to set snares, who livest all alone, close to the bone, and where life is sweetest, constantly eatest. When the spring stirs my blood, with the instinct to travel, I can get enough gravel on the old Marlborough Road. Nobody repairs it, for nobody wears it. It is a living way, as the Christians say. Not many there be who enter therein, only the guests of the Irishman Quinn. What is it, what is it, but a direction out there, and the bare possibility of going somewhere? Great guideboards of stone, but travelers none. Cenotaphs of the towns, named on their crowns. It is worth going to see, where you might be. What king did the thing, I am still wondering. Set up how or when, by what select men? Gorgas or Lee, Clark or Darby. They're a great endeavor, to be something forever. Blank tablets of stone, where a traveler might groan, and in one sentence, grave all that is known. Which another might read, in his extreme need. I know one or two, lines that would do, literature that might stand all over the land, which a man could remember, till next December, and read again in the spring, after the thawing. If with fancy unfurled, you leave your abode, you may go round the world, by the old Marlborough Road. At present, in this vicinity, the best part of the land is not private property. The landscape is not owned, and the walker enjoys comparative freedom. But possibly the day will come when it will be partitioned off into so-called pleasure grounds, in which a few will take a narrow and exclusive pleasure only. When fences shall be multiplied, and man-traps and other engines invented, to confine men to the public road, and walking over the surface of God's earth shall be construed to mean trespassing on some gentleman's grounds. To enjoy a thing exclusively is commonly to exclude yourself from the true enjoyment of it. Let us improve our opportunities, then, before the evil days come. What is it that makes it so hard sometimes to determine whither we will walk? I believe that there is a subtle magnetism in nature, which, if we unconsciously yield to it, will direct us aright. It is not indifferent to us which way we walk. There is a right way, but we are very liable from heedlessness and stupidity to take the wrong one. We would fain take that walk, never yet taken by us through this actual world, which is perfectly symbolical of the path which we love to travel in the interior and ideal world. And sometimes, no doubt, we find it difficult to choose our direction, 
because it does not yet exist distinctly in our idea. When I go out of the house for a walk, uncertain as yet whither I will bend my steps, and submit myself to my instinct to decide for me, I find, strange and whimsical as it may seem, that I finally and inevitably settle southwest, towards some particular wood or meadow, or deserted pasture or hill, in that direction. My needle is slow to settle, varies a few degrees, and does not always point due southwest. It is true, and it has good authority for this variation. But it always settles between west and south-southwest. The future lies that way to me, and the earth seems more unexhausted and richer on that side. The outline, which would bound my walks, would be, not a circle, but a parabola, or rather, like one of those cometary orbits which have been thought to be non-returning curves. In this case, opening westward, in which my house occupies the place of the sun. I turn round and round, irresolute sometimes, for a quarter of an hour, until I decide, for a thousandth time, that I will walk into the southwest or west. Eastward I go only by force, but westward I go free. Thither no business leads me. It is hard for me to believe that I shall find fair landscapes or sufficient wildness and freedom behind the eastern horizon. I am not excited by the prospect of a walk thither, but I believe that the forest which I see in the western horizon stretches uninterruptedly toward the setting sun, and there are no towns nor cities in it of enough consequence to disturb me. Let me live where I will. On this side is the city, on that the wilderness, and I am ever leaving the city more and more and withdrawing into the wilderness. I should not lay so much stress on this fact, if I did not believe that something like this is the prevailing tendency of my countrymen. I must walk toward Oregon, and not toward Europe. And that way the nation is moving, and I may say that mankind progresses from east to west. Within a few years we have witnessed the phenomenon of a southeastward migration in the settlement of Australia. But this affects us as a retrograde movement, and, judging from the moral and physical character of the first generation of Australians, has not yet proved a successful experiment. The eastern Tartars think that there is nothing west beyond Tibet. The world ends there, say they. Beyond there is nothing but a shoreless sea. It is unmitigated east where they live. We go eastward to realize history and study the works of art and literature, retracing the steps of the race. We go westward, as into the future, with a spirit of enterprise and adventure. The Atlantic is a Lethean stream, in our passage over which we have had an opportunity to forget the old world and its institutions. If we do not succeed this time, there is perhaps one more chance for the race left before it arrives on the banks of the Styx. And that is in the Lethe of the Pacific, which is three times as wide. I know not how significant it is, or how far it is evidence of singularity, that an individual should thus consent in his pettiest walk 
with the general movement of the race. But I know that something akin to the migratory instinct in birds and quadrupeds, which in some instances is known to have affected the squirrel tribe, impelling them to a general and mysterious movement, in which they were seen, say some, crossing the broadest rivers, each on its particular chip, with its tail raised for a sail, and bridging narrower streams with their dead. That something like the furor which affects the domestic cattle in the spring, and which is referred to a worm in their tails, affects both nations and individuals, either perennially or from time to time. Not a flock of wild geese cackles over our town, but it to some extent unsettles the value of real estate here, and, if I were a broker, I should probably take that disturbance into account. Van Longen folk, to gone on pilgrimages, and palmers, for to seek in strange strands. Every sunset which I witness inspires me with the desire to go to a west as distant and as fair as that into which the sun goes down. He appears to migrate westward daily, and tempt us to follow him. He is the great western pioneer whom the nations follow. We dream all night of those mountain ridges in the horizon, though they may be of vapor only which were last gilded by his rays. The island of Atlantis, and the islands and gardens of the Hesperides, a sort of terrestrial paradise, appear to have been the great west of the ancients, enveloped in mystery and poetry. Who has not seen in imagination, when looking into the sunset sky, the gardens of the Hesperides, and the foundation of all those fables. Columbus felt the westward tendency more strongly than any before. He obeyed it, and found a new world for Castile and Leon. The herd of men in those days scented fresh pastures from afar. And now the sun had stretched out all the hills, and now was dropped into the western bay. And last he rose, and twitched his mantle blue, tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. Where on the globe can there be found an area of equal extent with that occupied by the bulk of our states, so fertile and so rich and varied in its productions, and at the same time so habitable by the European as this is? Michaud, who knew but part of them, says that, the species of large trees are much more numerous in North America than in Europe. In the United States there are more than 140 species that exceed 30 feet in height. In France there are but 30 that attain this size. Later botanists more than confirm his observations. Humboldt came to America to realize his youthful dreams of a tropical vegetation, and he beheld it in its greatest perfection in the primitive forests of the Amazon. The most gigantic wilderness on the earth, which he has so eloquently described. The geographer Guyot, himself a European, goes farther. Farther than I am ready to follow him, yet not. 
when he says, As the plant is made for the animal, as the vegetable world is made for the animal world, America is made for the man of the old world. The man of the old world sets out upon his way. Leaving the highlands of Asia, he descends from station to station towards Europe. Each of his steps is marked by a new civilization superior to the preceding, by a greater power of development. Arrived at the Atlantic, he pauses on the shore of this unknown ocean, the bounds of which he knows not, and turns upon his footprints for an instant. When he has exhausted the rich soil of Europe and reinvigorated himself, then recommences his adventurous career westward as in the earliest ages. So far, Guyo. From this western impulse coming in contact with the barrier of the Atlantic sprang the commerce and enterprise of modern times. The younger Michaud, in his Travels West of the Alleghenies, in 1802, says that the common inquiry in the newly settled West was, From what part of the world have you come? As if these vast and fertile regions would naturally be the place of meeting in common country of all the inhabitants of the globe. To use an obsolete Latin word, I might say, ex oriente lux, ex occidente frux. From the east, light. From the west, fruit. Sir Francis Head, an English traveler and a governor-general of Canada, tells us that, in both the northern and southern hemispheres of the New World, nature has not only outlined her works on a larger scale, but has painted the whole picture with brighter and more costly colors than she used in delineating and in beautifying the Old World. The heavens of America appear infinitely higher, the sky is bluer, the air is fresher, the cold is intenser, the moon looks larger, the stars are brighter, the thunder is louder, the lightning is vivider, the wind is stronger, the rain is heavier, the mountains are higher, the rivers longer, the forests bigger, the plains broader. This statement will do at least to set against Buffon's account of this part of the world and its productions. Linnaeus said long ago, Nesico que facius leta glabra plantis americanis. I know not what there is of joyous and smooth in the aspect of American plants. And I think that in this country there are no, or at most very few, Africanae bestiae, African beasts, as the Romans called them, and that in this respect also it is peculiarly fitted for the habitation of man. We are told that within three miles of the center of the East Indian city of Singapore, some of the inhabitants are annually carried off by tigers, but the traveler can lie down in the woods at night almost anywhere in North America without fear of wild beasts. These are encouraging testimonies. If the moon looks larger here than in Europe, probably the sun looks larger also. If the heavens of America appear infinitely higher, and the stars brighter, 
I trust that these facts are symbolical of the height to which the philosophy and poetry and religion of her inhabitants may one day soar. At length, perchance, the immaterial heaven will appear as much higher to the American mind, and the intimations that star it as much brighter. For I believe that climate does thus react on a man, as there is something in the mountain air that feeds the spirit and inspires. Will not man grow to greater perfection intellectually, as well as physically, under these influences? Or is it unimportant how many foggy days there are in his life? I trust that we shall be more imaginative, that our thoughts will be clearer, fresher, and more ethereal, as our sky, our understanding more comprehensive and broader, like our planes, our intellect generally on a grander scale, like our thunder and lightning, our rivers and mountains and forests. And our hearts shall even correspond in breadth and depth and grandeur to our inland seas. Perchance there will appear to the traveler something, he knows not what, of Leta and Glabra, of joyous and serene, in our very faces. Else to what end does the world go on? And why was America discovered? To Americans, I hardly need to say, westward the star of empire takes its way. As a true patriot, I should be ashamed to think that Adam in paradise was more favorably situated on the whole than the backwoodsmen in this country. Our sympathies in Massachusetts are not confined to New England. Though we may be estranged from the South, we sympathize with the West. There is the home of the younger sons. As among the Scandinavians, they took to the sea for their inheritance. It is too late to be studying Hebrew. It is more important to understand even the slang of today. Some months ago, I went to see a panorama of the Rhine. It was like a dream of the Middle Ages. I floated down its historic stream in something more than imagination, under bridges built by the Romans, and repaired by later heroes, past cities and castles whose very names were music to my ears, and each of which was the subject of a legend. There were Ehrenbritstein and Rolandseck and Koblenz, which I knew only in history. They were ruins that interested me chiefly. There seemed to come up from its waters and its vine-clad hills and valleys a hushed music as of crusaders departing for the Holy Land. I floated along under the spell of enchantment, as if I had been transported to an heroic age, and breathed an atmosphere of chivalry. Soon after, I went to see a panorama of the Mississippi, and as I worked my way up the river in the light of today, and saw the steamboats wooding up, counted the rising cities, gazed on the fresh ruins of Nauvoo, beheld the Indians moving west across the stream, and, as before, I had looked up the Moselle, now looked up the Ohio and the Missouri, and heard the legends of Dubuque 
and of Winona's Cliff, still thinking more of the future than of the past or present. I saw that this was a Rhine stream of a different kind, that the foundations of castles were yet to be laid, and the famous bridges were yet to be thrown over the river, and I felt that this was the heroic age itself, though we know it not, for the hero is commonly the simplest and obscurest of men. The West of which I speak is but another name for the wild, and what I have been preparing to say is that in wildness is the preservation of the world. Every tree sends its fibers forth in search of the wild. The cities import it at any price. Men plow and sail for it. From the forest and wilderness come the tonics and barks which brace mankind. Our ancestors were savages. The story of Romulus and Remus being suckled by a wolf is not a meaningless fable. The founders of every state which has risen to eminence have drawn their nourishment and vigor from a similar wild source. It was because the children of the empire were not suckled by the wolf that they were conquered and displaced by the children of the northern forests who were. I believe in the forest, and in the meadow, and in the night in which the corn grows. We require an infusion of hemlock, spruce, or arbor vitae in our tea. There is a difference between eating and drinking for strength, and from mere gluttony. The Hotentots eagerly devour the marrow of the kudu, and other antelopes raw, as a matter of course. Some of our northern Indians eat raw marrow of the Arctic reindeer, as well as various other parts, including the summits of the antlers, as long as they are soft. And herein, perchance, they have stolen a march on the cooks of Paris. They get what usually goes to feed the fire. This is probably better than stall-fed beef and slaughterhouse pork to make a man of. Give me a wildness whose glance no civilization can endure, as if we lived on the marrow of kudus devoured raw. There are some intervals which border the strain of the wood thrush, to which I would migrate, wild lands where no settler is squatted, to which, methinks, I am already acclimated. The African hunter coming tells us that the skin of the eland as well as that of most other antelopes just killed, emits the most delicious perfume of trees and grass. I would have every man so much like a wild antelope, so much a part and parcel of nature, that his very person should thus sweetly advertise our senses of his presence, and remind us of those parts of nature which he most haunts. I feel no disposition to be satirical, when the trapper's coat emits the odor of musquash even, it is a sweeter scent to me than that which commonly exhales from the merchant's or the scholar's garments. When I go into their wardrobes and handle their vestments, I am reminded of no grassy plains and flowery meads which they have frequented, but of dusty merchant's exchanges and libraries, rather. A tanned skin is something more than respectable and perhaps olive is a fitter color than white for a man. 
a denizen of the woods. The pale white man! I do not wonder that the African pitied him. Darwin the naturalist says, A white man bathing by the side of a Tahitian was like a plant bleached by the gardener's art, compared with a fine, dark green one growing vigorously in the open fields. Ben Johnson exclaims, How near to good is what is fair? So I would say, How near to good is what is wild? And Part 1 of Walking by Henry David Thoreau This recording is in the public domain.